Some time ago, I had a conversation with Sylvia Andrews in the hall. <clears throat> the Lord had touched her heart um, with, uh, golly, Sylvia, it's up here now, <laughs> uh, with a message. And she shared with me what she went through as a Christian, kind of a testimony. Our message this morning is about the dangers of concentrating on the externals. And the, her testimony fits so perfectly with what I'm saying. I ask her to come and share um, part of that testimony with you as just what God has walked through in her life to get us into this particular scripture. I appreciate her doing this. Uh, you ought to know that before you tell me anything that God's doing in your life, it's a very dangerous thing to do because you might end up here someday. Sylvia Andrews, and I've been coming to Northland for two and a half years, and there's no doubts in my mind that God brought my family and myself to Northland. Uh, I have notes because I'm nervous. <laughs> um, I was very, very fortunate to be brought up in a Christian home. My mother and father loved the Lord. They wanted to raise me to love the Lord, and they raised me the best way that they knew how. They raised me the way that they were raised. I was brought up in a mainline denominational church, a very legalistic environment. And if you come from a legalistic environment, you know what that's like. If you don't, maybe you can try to understand a little bit of what I'm going to say. I was taught that in order to gain favor in God's eyes and to win a place in heaven, that all I had to do was follow this list of rules. And uh, there were do's on that list and don'ts, mostly don'ts. <laughs> Lots of things that you were not supposed to do, places you don't dare go, clothes you don't wear, music you don't listen to, things you don't drink. You know, probably most of you know that list. Um, with that comes judgmentalism. You set yourself up as other people's judge. And I could tell you whether or not you were a Christian. Many times I could look at you without talking to you and tell you if you were a Christian by the way you looked. And, uh, you know, this sounds silly to be saying this, but this was the way that we lived. We were very self-righteous. We felt like we were the ones who were right and everyone else was wrong. If you wanted to go to heaven, you needed to get on our boat. You needed to follow our rules. Ours was the only list that was right. But one of the sad things about it is that if you had asked me what God had done for me in my life, I would have had difficulty answering you. I could recite my list to you and I could quote some scripture for you. But what had God done for me? What, what difference had he made in my life? I, I could not tell you. I did not know. God is the very, very faithful hound of heaven. And that, I think, is my favorite expression of him, the hound of heaven. There must have been a point somewhere in my life when I was listening because I heard God's voice. And I began to be aware that he was chasing me. 
that he was back there, and no matter where I went, I could not get him off of my trail. He was back there. And he planted a desire in my heart for more than what I knew. He let me know that my rules were not satisfactory. I was in Egyptian bondage is what I was in. I began to pray that the Lord would work in my life, that I wanted more than what I had, and he led us to Northland. As I said, we've been here two and a half years, and it has been a beautiful experience for us. This is our first break with a mainline denomination. The love and the freedom that we have sensed here has been overwhelming. Freedom to be what God wants you to be. The love that is visible here, uh, I have not seen before. To see sick people fed, those in the hospitals ministered to and their families. To see the box in the back of the church filled up with food for hungry people to see people who are hurting ministered to. That is love. And you know, God, Jesus said that the world would know that we were his disciples because we had love for one another. It wasn't because we followed a list, because we wore our phylacteries, but because we had love for one another. And I saw that here. There is something different than what I had had before here. And I started doing a dangerous thing. I started praying that God would search my heart. And I was serious about it. And he did. He searched my heart. And he brought a very severe mercy into my life. I had an emotional breakdown. It devastated my life. Everything that I thought that I knew, I no longer knew. It was a very, very traumatic period. Um, this church ministered to me and to my family in such a real way. It's one of the things that got us through that time in our life. People would come and clean my house pick my children up when I couldn't take them places, take me to the doctor, comfort my husband. Joel counseled with me many hours, many weeks. And we were just enveloped with love. It wasn't long before God laid my heart open before me. And I got to look at myself the way that he saw me. And I saw the sin that had been in there and that had caused me to judge so many people and had caused me to say, well, you can't love God the way I do because you go here or you do that. And yet those were the people who were ministering to me. Those were the people who were loving me as Jesus had commanded. And I realized that that sin in my heart was as painful to God, was as vile to God as anything else. 
as the sin of the prostitute, the child pornographer, whoever it was. We like to color sin and say that one thing is worse than another, you know, that there are darker sins and, and things that aren't so bad. But I don't believe that God looks at sin that way. Sin is sin. Any sin in our lives is wrong. And that sin that was in my heart was just as evil as any other. I do have a testimony. You know, I've wondered for so many years, what can I testify to? God has redeemed me. He did die for me. No matter how good a person I've been all my life, he died for me. And he has set me free. I have not prayed that prayer again because it was painful. But I know that I will again someday. I'm still healing. But God is so faithful. And I know that when I'm able to pray that prayer again and open my heart again and be vulnerable, that he will be there and he will show me what I let him show me. We are preaching through a series of sermons called Reading the Red, the words of Jesus. What I want to talk about today is how Christianity can actually be a block between you and Christ. How our religiosity can stand in the way of a personal relationship. Sylvia testified that even after she came to know the Lord, there were things in her heart that God didn't touch, that remained there, the, the judgmentalism, you know. Um, she did everything right. She had all the right religious mechanics in place, but God knew there was still something in her heart that she needed to give him. Jesus was in exactly that position when he came to the house of the Pharisee. They sat down to lunch. The Greek word means brunch. They sat down and Jesus did not ceremonially wash the bowl. Now, this act that Jesus was supposed to go through was not for cleanliness. It was an act of religiosity. And there was a certain way you were supposed to do it, certain motions that you were supposed to do it. This ceremonial act was not even based on the Levitical law. It was based on Pharisaical tradition and the oral law. So he accused Jesus, you did not cleanse the bowl ceremonially. In so doing, he was saying, let's talk about religion. And Jesus looked at him as he looks at us and said, let's not talk about religion, let's talk about you. Wouldn't it be wonderful to get off into some intellectual bent about who was right in religion? That's what we continually do. When we get into religious conversations, there's always the, well, who's right? That's not the way Christ operates. Christ says, <clears throat> let's talk about you. There's something in your heart that all of this religiosity is hiding, and I want it. I want it. There is some way you can manufacture a religion that stands in between you and me, 
and I want it out. Because I want you to give from what is in your heart, no matter what it looks like, no matter how nasty it is. That word in there is a Greek word. The word for give is a Greek word that comes from an ancient Aramaic, Aramaic verb that was spelled zeta kappa iota, and it meant both to cleanse yourself morally and to give alms to the poor. That's why there's the discrepancy between uh, uh, Matthew and Luke. Luke emphasizes giving alms and, and Matthew emphasizes cleansing. But the word is that Christ wants us to give what is in our heart, no matter how filthy it is. It is so convenient for us to come to church and just do churchy stuff, isn't it? All the while, we can hide from the kind of people we are and from what continues to destroy us. All the while. One of my sons was sick a few years ago, very sick. He went to the hospital, and he was in real pain. And we said to the doctor, can't you give him something to ease the pain? And the doctor said, yes, I can. But what will happen is that it will mask the symptoms it will make him seem better than he is so that we cannot track the progress of the disease. It's your choice. And I thought, how much like Christianity, if we just do a little bit of it, take a little medicine, we mask the symptoms we have. We don't have quite as violent a symptoms as everyone else. But yet, we fool ourselves into thinking that we have no progressive disease inside of us called sin. That because we can couch our anger in religious terms, because we can couch our lust in religious terms, because we can talk religion till the cows come home, we don't really have to deal with the sin that is in our heart. And Jesus said, I want to talk religion. I want to talk you. You. We all have in our hearts a progressive disease called sin. All of us. Now, some have a diff little different variety than others, but it's all there. And it slowly takes us over when it's not addressed into ways we don't realize it. That's why Jesus was asking for the offering. Becky's brother, a few years back, was working on a degree in biology from Ball State, and he took a trip to Belize. They had a study um, in Belize, um, and he, he went with a guide one day out into the jungle, and the guide was showing him different things about the jungle. And they came upon a clearing, and she pulled him down behind a bush. She said, I want you to see this. And he looked out, and there was an absolute mortal battle going on. I mean, there was this tarantula, and what she whispered to him was a tarantula wasp. And this thing was huge. It was like the, the size of a hummingbird. And he watched them fight this morbid conflict. This wasp would come, and the tarantula would come back on its hind legs, waiting for the wasp to become close enough so that he could sink his talons into the wasp. Finally, the wasp came down, 
flipped the tarantula over on his back and sunk her stinger into the abdomen of the tarantula. At the same time, the tarantula was then close enough, grabbed the wasp and sank his talons into the tarantula, killing, or tarantula wasp, killing the wasp. The wasp fell over, the tarantula laid motionless for a few seconds and then came back to life and righted his body and crawled off. Mark looked at his guide and said, so the tarantula won. And his guide said, I know it would appear so, but what you have not seen is when that tarantula wasp came down and flipped that spider over on his back, she sunk her eggs into his abdomen. She planted those eggs in there before she was killed, and even though she's dead, those eggs will grow. And slowly those eggs will grow into larvae. And they will suck the life juices of that tarantula until the tarantula dies, and born out of the carcass of that tarantula will come more, more tarantula wasps. Now, I know that's awful and graphic. I know it is. But I want to tell you, sin isn't any prettier than that. When Satan comes to us and we have a battle with Satan, it's not all won or lost within that battle. Whether or not we resist that temptation, there is something planted in our hearts that grows. And as it grows, it sucks away from us the energy that we would use to be healthy. And Jesus looked at this Pharisee as he looks at you and I, and he says, I don't want to talk about religion. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about what's in your heart. Don't want to talk about anybody else. I want to talk about you. What's in your heart? You know, that's tough for us to do when we're so entertained by so many things. It's tough for us to do when we're part of an organized church. And I love the organized church, obviously. I love it. But it's awful tough for me to concentrate on my sins when I know about yours. And it'd be so much more fun to concentrate on yours. Isn't that kind of the way it is? You know, the first motto on a U.S. coin was not, in God we trust. The first motto minted on a U.S. coin <laughs> back in 1787, imprinted on a U.S. penny, was, guess what? Mind your own business. That's what it was. Honest to goodness. Mind your own business. You know, I think the first step in trusting in God is to mind our own business to look into our heart and to let God have access to that. The first part of this scripture, he's simply looking at the Pharisee and says, you've got all of these great ways to mechanically work out your religion, but you haven't given me your heart. You're dead inside. The second part, when he addresses the lawyer, is about all of the wonderful things, <laughs> the wonderful ways we honor God while at the same time hide 
from him. When you build a tomb for somebody, you not only honor him, you make sure he stays dead. Right? That's what they were doing for the prophets. They weren't listening to the prophets anymore. They were just making sure they stayed dead. Wasn't it wonderful when so-and-so roamed the earth and taught all this about God? Sitting on the tomb. Can I say something to you that's going to make you feel uncomfortable? I'm going to say a few things that might make you mad. As a matter of fact, I was thinking this morning how great it is I'm not still a Methodist because half of you would run out and call the bishop after you heard this. <laughs> now you wouldn't because you know what I'm going to say is true. All of the things that we do to make ourselves acceptable religiously are the very things we must be careful of. I don't particularly want to be known as a Christian. How do you like that? I don't particularly want to be known for my part that I have in the religion that is called Christianity. Because you know what? As soon as you put what I have with Jesus Christ into that category, it is a part of one of the five great religions of the world, and all of a sudden I have to defend Christianity, and I've got to prove why it's better than any other religion that ever lived. That's not the point. That is not the point. I don't want to be known because I'm a Christian. And I don't especially want to be in that category. Because it hides me. I can do all kinds of things as a Christian and never face God. I can entertain all kinds of questions and never get personal with God. I can think of things that are wrong with the church that I ought to fix. I don't need God for that. I can issue you all kinds of wonderful religious advice. I don't need God from there. I just take a formula out of the Bible and apply it to your life. And God needs not to be a part of that. Or I don't need God to be a part of that in order to do it. I can be a wonderful Christian. But I can't be a follower of Jesus Christ. I cannot be in love with Jesus without Jesus. You can't do it. You can't do it. I had breakfast this week with the director of a ministry that is in 69 countries. It's huge. What they do mostly is have Bible studies and train people for discipleship. And they do a lot of Bible studies with government officials of all different governments. On the QT, because you don't have a public Bible study when you're in government, that's not the point. He was talking about one particular Bible study in Washington that involved government officials, all of which you would recognize their names, and there was this one old Jewish guy that had been coming for three years, never said a word, never had mentioned a word in three years. If I told you who it was, you'd know his name. Well, the leader couldn't be there that Sunday, or that week, that day, that session. So he called up some of the other guys, tried to call some of the other guys in the group. And he couldn't get a hold of them. So he finally called up this little Jewish guy. And he said, would you 
I hate to ask this, but I'm not, can't come. Would you end the Bible study with a prayer? And the little guy said, yeah. This was his prayer. Lord, I pray that all the Muslims in the world will come to know Jesus. And that all the Buddhists in the world will come to know Jesus. And that all the Jews in the world will come to know Jesus. As I have come to know you. And all the Christians in the world will come to know Jesus. What a prayer. The most famous evangelist in the world recently bowed his head in frustration and said, it seems like I have spent the last 20 years trying to convert Christians to Christ. And all of the while, while, we're trying to figure out how to be Baptists or how to be Presbyterians or how to be non-denominational, for crying out loud. I I got a phone call the other week. It was really cute. This lady calls up, wants to know if she can use the fellowship hall for a big group. And I said, you know, we're not done with that yet. That's so tacky. I'd rather, you know, public groups not use that until we get done with it. But you're welcome to it after we get done with it. Glad to have you. And she said, well, how much would you charge? I said, oh, we never charge anything. This is the Lord's house. It's not for rent. You know, you're just welcome to it. Long silence. She said, well, maybe we could come and sing at a fundraiser sometime. I said, well, we don't have fundraisers. We just, you know, live on whatever God gives us. Long silence. She said, is this one of those undenominational churches? I said, that's exactly what we are, undenominational. And you know what? Every time we talk about that to somebody, she says, oh, what do you believe? I hope we never discover what we believe because then we become another denomination. And there's nothing wrong with denominations. There's nothing wrong with Presbyterians or Baptists or Methodists or Catholics or whatever, except that we pick on each other all the time. I never have been able to figure that out. Some people get so insulted because somebody will go and say 25 Hail Marys when that same person will try to work 25 Praise the Lords into every conversation they have. You know, you tell me the difference. Tell me the difference. I cannot figure it out. There's nothing. You know, we have a richness in our background. We shouldn't need to give any of that up. But God doesn't care. It's not really important. Listening, being able to hear Jesus is important. Period. Period. And we can couch all of these things in our heart in wonderful religious terms. I know that there are some of us who have grown up angry, and you're still angry. And everything that happens, your immediate response is anger. I tell you what, you catch that into enough religious terms, you can be a television evangelist and make millions of dollars. You turn those guys on. Man, you get, your hair is back here. Why? Because they're mad. They're just mad. And they're couching it in religious terms and supposedly they're doing it for good, but they're still just plain mad. They've never dealt with the anger in their heart. Never been healed of it. It's not healthy. 
You know what? This will rock your socks off. I have yet to figure out the essential difference between the kind of lust that says, I've got to have that woman for my bed, and the kind of lust that says, I've got to have that person for my church. I can't tell any difference there. Same basic thing. I've got to control their lives and make them like me. I've got to conquer them. I can't tell any difference. Can't tell any difference. And do you think that God cares whose church they go to as long as they are being fed the Word of God and growing in Christ? He doesn't care. He doesn't care if they come here. He doesn't care if they go to the Presbyterians or the back. He doesn't care. And we build these wonderful religious mechanisms to substitute for intimacy with God. Just like we build wonderful mechanisms called marriage that become a substitute for intimacy with each other. We've got the system. He does dishes this night, I do dishes this night. After 25 years, you look around, when's the last time tears ever ran out of your eyes because you were married to that other person. You got a great system. No intimacy. See what happens? God said, I don't want to talk. Religion? I don't want to talk. Marriage? I want to talk to you. Because I know that there are some things in your heart you've not dealt with. I know there are. I know that when you were little, you were violated by somebody stronger than you are. And so you've grown up very angry or very afraid. And I know you've transferred all of that stuff into some sort of religious language so that you can appear to be a Christian. And you've never let me have it. You've spent all your life trying to control circumstances, trying to control yourself, trying to control other people. Give it to me. I don't want to live in there with that. I want you to voice it. I want you to get rid of it. I want to create in you a clean heart. Would you pray with me? God, we have played church for so long and it's been fun but it has not been very intimate. There are very good reasons why we are afraid to be vulnerable before you. To have taken away from us the things that we would guard against anybody, even you. There are reasons we don't want to admit the sin in our hearts. The lust, the hostility, the competitiveness, the fear, the distrust. There are reasons because it's simply not acceptable to anybody. And we always assumed it wasn't acceptable to you. But we know you're asking for it. You're asking that we give it as an offering to you so that we don't have to live with it anymore. 
and we can have an intimate relationship with you and not a religion instead of, of you. Some of us are ready to do that this morning. Help us to give you what's in our heart and to turn our lives to you in a way that we can be lovers, that we can hug, that we can sense joy and be close. You have said in your word that all that was required is that we just walk humbly with you. Can it really be that simple? That in knowing Jesus Christ in our hearts, we can just live our whole lives listening to you? Can it really be that simple, Lord? Help us to sacrifice the things that have made us secure before and lay them down at your feet and crawl up in your lap and be loved. As we come to this communion table, we come as individuals, but when we lay our sins down and join with you, we become one person. Make us one person just now in this sacrament, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would the ushers please come forward? And as they pass the elements to you, we will pass both elements at once. Please pass them to your neighbor and let your neighbor serve you so that you will have both elements in your hands and if you will wait until we all have elements, we will take this communion together.